0: Well, good evening, Redeemer. We're glad that you can join us for this time of worship this evening. And uh, as we begin our time, if you uh, happen to be uh, visiting with us, we want to give you a very special welcome and uh, hope that we can uh, uh, connect with you uh, after the service. And uh, maybe some of those that are around you uh, afterwards, can uh, you can greet and hopefully get to know a few people before you're you leave tonight, but uh, just so glad you could be here. If you'd like to make your presence known to us, one of the ways you can do that is just text the word welcome to the number that's on the screen uh, or fill out the connect card if you prefer paper. It's in the seat back in front of you. Uh, Tonight, after our worship service, the uh, children's choir is going to meet uh, briefly for their practice and uh, we also have uh, coming up next Sunday night our uh, praise service and our food and fellowship dinner. This is Going to be a, a one of our prime uh, Christmas celebrations uh, for the year. So hope you can join us for that and participate uh, in that evening. A lot of wonderful music planned. It'll be a great night. You invite friends, uh, neighbors, co-workers, people that you would like to bring to church. Great time to do that. Uh, We also have an opportunity to be giving uh, this coming uh, Christmas, or we're in the Christmas season, not coming, but we're in the Christmas season now. We have uh, the giving tree, or the Christmas tree in the foyer. Uh, We can give to the uh, Haiti refugees, and uh, also uh, the Mercy Deacons have a number of items that are there. These are asked to be gift-wrapped and uh, brought back by next Sunday. Uh, We would encourage you Uh, Also, to plan for our Christmas Eve service, which is going to be our normal evening service time, 5 p.m. on the 24th, Uh, but another time you can invite friends and family. Uh, Last announcement is regarding officer nominations. Uh, Just encourage you to prayerfully consider who you would want to nominate. Talk to that person, make sure they're willing. Uh, Nominate that person. All those officer nominations are due uh, next Sunday on the 17th as well. Uh, So just wanted to note that. So that's my last announcement. Let's uh, prepare our hearts as we come to, to worship our God. Sometimes people question uh, the fact that we worship an invisible God. And uh, others have said, well, you don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. And uh, even though our God is not seen, he is spirit. Uh, we recognize that the Lord uh, has demonstrated his power in countless different ways. And we are invited uh, by the psalmist, as he says in our uh, scripture in Psalm 66, to come and see what God has done, his wondrous deeds. And so he says uh, in the beginning of verse six, or chapter 66, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Let us exalt him together as we stand to sing. Gracious God, we come this night to exalt you because of who you are and because of what you have done, what you have accomplished uh, for your people and what you have done to bring glory uh, to your name. And in this season, Lord, we are uh, in awe of the fact that you would give your one and only son, that your son would come willingly and become human. And it just blows our minds that you would uh, uh, do these things for sinners like us, those that have rebelled against you, and yet what you have done to bring redemption. And we give you great praise that your Spirit has done a work in our hearts, Lord, that we desire uh, to know you by faith and to walk with you as the faithful. And so help us uh, by your grace this night as we worship you. Amen.
1: Please be seated. Tonight, in our prayers for our missions, we lift up Purposeful Pathways. Purposeful Pathways exists to assist Haitian youths towards personal independence and Christ-centered service. They achieve this through sponsorships, relational support, and community building to provide discipleship, mentoring, and training for successful transitions. If you are looking for more information about Purposeful Pathways, you can contact Deborah Benson, who is not only the champion for this mission, but also leads the ministries. Join me now in our prayer for for Purposeful Pathways. Dear Lord, we lift up the kingdom work that is being done at Purposeful Pathways, and we ask that you continue to work through this organization to bring the young people of Haiti closer to you. Please hear these requests as we bring them to you. We ask for your protection, over your word and work through Purposeful Pathways and the Haitian ministries they support. Please watch over Pastor Ernst, Pastor Claude, and Pastor Anuel. We pray that they will have continued strength, courage, and tenacity as they face the many challenges that are ahead of them. We pray for the safety, the strength, and courage for the 31 staff members and the 227 students at the Alpha and the Omega Ministries as they continue school under so many threats. We pray for the safety, strength, and courage for the 13 employees of the DePark ministry as they continue under many threats as well. We pray that you will provide the resources so that both ministries are able to give a Christmas celebration within their communities. We pray, God, that you will prevent the attempts of wicked people to steal the farmland belonging to the DePark Christian Church. We also pray for our sister Deborah Benson to have the humility, wisdom, and emotional strength to lead the ministries under purposeful pathways. Finally, Lord, we pray that you will daily teach us to follow your way, your time, and that your glory can come here on earth. Hear our prayers now. Amen. Please stand for our song of thanksgiving. Let all mortal flesh keep silent.
2: Let us join our hearts in a prayer of thanksgiving. Our Father and our God, we come to you in this evening to give you thanks, for you and you indeed are the glorious God, the God beyond compare. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you that you set your love upon a people that is undeserving. And Father, as we will hear tonight, how deplorable our situation is. Indeed, our sin is very great. It rises up before you. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you set your love upon a people uh, even despite our sin, despite our our deadness in sins and trespasses. Yet, Lord, you loved us in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we are thankful in this season, in this Christmas season, as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that our Lord and Savior is not a mere man, is not a man afflicted by sin, but is the God-man, God incarnate, the God come in the flesh, who is able to be our perfect mediator. And so, Father, we are thankful this night for Jesus Christ. We give you praise for him, And we pray, God, that our love for him, for what he has done for us, might ever increase and inflame and grow, and that we would grow in our holiness and devotion to you because of what you have done for us. Fill our hearts, O God, with thanksgiving for our King Jesus. And we're thankful, too, Father, for the word, for this preached word that we can hear week by week, for the gospel message, what Jesus Christ has done. And so, Lord, we pray, too, that you would be with Pastor Jeff as he preaches your word tonight. Fill him, O God, by your Spirit, that we would indeed see Jesus tonight. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with each member here, that each member would come to know you and love you in a saving way. We pray, too, Lord, for a blessing upon the offering. We ask, God, that you would use this in ways that only you can that you would use these funds for the furtherance of your kingdom. And to you be all the power and all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
3: tonight I'd like to turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll be reading in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20. While you're turning there, or if you prefer to follow along in the screen behind me, I want to alert you to where the topic that um, leads us to Romans chapter 3, where that topic is found. If you've been here on many of the previous sunday evenings you'll know that i have been preaching through the 10 commandments what these 10 commandments mean and now in question 82 of the shorter catechism right after the 10th commandment there is this question is any person able perfectly to keep the commandments of god the answer is no mere person since the fall is able in this life to perfectly keep the commandments of god but does daily break them in thought word indeed So the question for tonight is, how bad is it? And we'll turn then to Romans chapter 3, reading verses 9 through 20. Hear the word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And if you want to look specifically tonight at verses 10, 11, and 12. Um, That is the uh, section I'll be focusing on. The question for tonight is, how bad is it? I can remember that question being one that I asked about seven years ago. It was about this time of year. There was ice on the driveway. We'd had a light snow, and my son asked me to help him unload a car. So as I was backpedaling on the ice, you can imagine what happened. I tripped and fell, and my leg landed underneath my back, and I heard a snap. We happened to have life group, what we called life group or small group that evening. I stayed at home and my wife went to talk to two of the nurses in that group and they were convinced that my leg was broken. I was not. It took me two days to come to that conclusion. And when we went to the doctor, my question after the x-ray was, how bad is it? That's the kind of question we ask, when we're trying to figure out what is what is going on? How bad is not, first of all, an ankle break, But the question tonight is more universal. How bad is our nature after the fall? By nature, I mean, how bad is it that we as human beings are living in rebellion against God? How serious is that? What is our moral condition? Are we going to be okay on our own? Do we need some help here or there? In the history of the Christian church, there have been really three different answers to the question of how bad are we apart from God. Tonight, I want to talk through those three answers briefly first, and then look at the answer that Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 3. The first answer to that question, how bad is it, could be this, it's an answer that we are essentially well. That is, in Western history, the kind of answer that would have been given to the question, how are we as humanity? That idea really dominated from the time of the Renaissance through the First World War. There was a belief generally held that as human beings, there were problems that we needed to face. But by the application of education and technology over time, we would succeed, we would overcome. I remember reading about one of the early World's Fair in which the logo was something like, and we will succeed. And when World War I hit, many people were aghast that there would be a war. And when that war was over, that war was called the war to end all wars. Only a few decades later, to face World War II. This answer to how bad is it anyway, is that it's not really that bad. We're generally pretty healthy as a human race. Better education, technology, better ways of doing things, and everything will be better in the end. Interestingly, this view of how things are was widely held in Western culture for many years. There are still places where it continues to be the case. It views humanity as largely products of evolution. We will do better. We will succeed with the right combination of help here and there. If we band together, everything will be all right. The second answer to this question, how bad is it? What is our state as humanity? The second answer that is now more largely held in our culture is that we are sick. There is something really wrong. After World War II, there was still an optimism in Western culture But by this time in our culture as a whole, my guess is the younger you are, the less optimistic you are about the future of Western society and humanity as a whole. You look around at how the application of technology has been used by human beings and you come to the horrible conclusion, it is not often for good, it's rather for terrible purposes. Drones are not just used to get information, now they're dropping bombs. Information is not leading us to make wiser, kinder, more loving decisions. In fact, technology is being used in order to harm each other in ways we could have never imagined a hundred years ago. We exploit each other in horrible ways. The access to information is not leading us to a better position, but rather a worse one. And if we look globally, it's not hard for us to see as human beings that there are still wars after many years of trying so hard to avoid them even while we're sitting here there are bombs dropping there are people fighting in the streets some of these wars are more recent in the last number of months some of them have been going on for years and so it is concluded in the answer to the question how bad is it is that it is bad and we do need help we might even, as many folks, maybe you, think we need supernatural help. The largest group of people in, on the increase in our culture is those who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. And the spiritual attraction comes from the sense that as human beings we have not solved our problems We need something superhuman or supernatural. That doesn't mean that we're looking to the God of the Bible. It just means we can see that we need serious help. How bad is it? We are sick is the answer given secondly. But the third answer to the question of how bad is it is the one that I want you to see tonight from the Scriptures And the answer to the question, how bad is it, is that it is more terrible than you could ever believe. In fact, if I just put it this way, it's unbelievably terrible. Or perhaps it's better to say, it's hard for us as humanity to believe how bad it is. It is really that bad. Because if you go back to the illustration I used at the beginning of the sermon, You're in the emergency room. The question is, how bad is it? If we're not talking about my broken ankle, but now we're talking about the condition, the moral condition that we have as humanity, the answer the Bible gives is not we're basically okay, we just need to improve. It's not that we're sick and we need some help. The answer the Bible gives is that we are dead. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves. When we're brought into the emergency room to extend the illustration, there's no spiritual heartbeat. There is no breath. Or to put it a different way, we are cold dead. We are unable to do anything to please God, to understand God, to want God. We're not just sick. We are in an absolutely helpless condition. Ephesians 2.1, as you might know, says, And you He made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sin." Or as Ezekiel talks about in chapter 37 in the Old Testament, he describes the deadness of our hearts after the fall apart from God in the most colorful language. He says, "...and the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones." Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold there were many bones in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. And then it says, thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live and I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and then you shall live. And then in Ezekiel 37, verse 6, to summarize the whole thing, Ezekiel is said to record these words of God, then you will know that I am the Lord. How bad is it? The answer the Bible gives us is not really that we're doing okay. It is certainly not that we are simply sick The Bible's answer in other places of the Scriptures is that it is unbelievably bad. Apart from God, we are not okay. We're not just sick. We are spiritually dead. We are in a hopeless condition. Now, having given you those three options, I want to now press into verses 9, 10, and 11 of the passage that we read just a moment ago. Because Paul has a way of describing for us a multifaceted way. If I can just raise this as an illustration, some of you men, if you're married, there's been a point at which you went shopping for an engagement ring. I can remember going to shop for my wife, and whatever number I gave, the salesman added 10%. And the way he tried to sell me was by looking at this, turn it this way, look how it sparkles, look at the facets of the diamonds. Your future wife is worth the most beautiful diamond that you can buy, right? The facets of this dead condition are laid out explicitly in verses 9, 10, and 11. And again, if the question is how bad is it, Paul says, let me explain. It's worse than you could imagine. And he gives us three ways of describing the facets of this condition He begins to quote in verses 10 and 11 from the Old Testament. In fact, that whole section that may be identified by its bump to the right in your edition of the Bible are simply quotations from the Old Testament. And Paul strings them together in order to make a powerful argument. And he begins his argument by saying, There is none that is righteous, no, not one. You might call this our moral nature. Righteousness belongs to a moral category. To be righteous by definition is to do what is acceptable to someone else. It is certainly possible to become confused about what is truly righteous. So let's pause a minute and I want to explain to you what truly righteous is. What I do not mean is that people, apart from God, cannot do things that are good and helpful and we can appreciate. I am glad, for example, that I can go to the doctor who really understands the way my body works. And if he can prescribe some medication or exercise or perhaps a surgery to help me, I'm very appreciative, even if he does not acknowledge God as the true God of the universe. I'm thankful that my banker understands money, my mechanic knows cars, that the judge knows the law. I'm even thankful for the guys at the hardware store that help me find the the right pitch on the thread that I'm looking for. Even though none of them may be Christians, I can say that they do good things and that I'm thankful for them. I can appreciate them genuinely. But that does not mean... That according to verse 10, that they are righteous. Paul says, no, that's not what he means by righteous. Because in the eyes of God himself, that's not righteousness. It is not relative benefit for some other person. It's not something we do that others appreciate. Those things are good and fine as far as they go. But when the Bible talks about genuine righteousness, it does so by a standard that is transhuman. It's a standard of God's perfect character himself. It's his holy character that is our standard. Psalm 5 verse 8 says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Psalm 35, 24 says, Vindicate me, O Lord according to your righteousness. God's standard of righteousness is absolute perfection. It is not sometimes right or often good. It is not like my grandfather, who was in a habit of giving all of his grandchildren a quarter, no matter what they did. I was amazed when my cousin threw his cat in the dryer, and he still got a quarter when we left. That's not God. The difference between this human goodness and God's absolute righteousness I want to really explain because often our hesitancy or misunderstanding comes at this point. We see other people who do good things and they're not Christians. They do not believe in the God of the universe. They do not trust in Jesus Christ. And we're apt to say, but they're such nice people. Praise the Lord that they are. I'm genuinely thankful they are. Just don't mistake that for meeting the standard of righteousness that then appeals to God himself. So let me explain to you using this little illustration. Imagine tonight when you come home from church, you decide to play a game of Monopoly. And you play it really, really well. In fact, you play it so well that at about an hour and a half time, you have ended the game by accumulating every possible Every possible dollar in the game, it's all there in front of you. I have no idea how much that adds up to you. Some of you will know. But let me suggest that you end up with some wild figure like half a million dollars in Monopoly money. And tomorrow morning, you are so happy with yourself that you walk into the Lake Michigan Credit Union and you say, I want to make a deposit. And you lay your half million Monopoly money there on the counter and you say, deposit it, please. Can you imagine what the teller would say? He or she would look at you and say... (laughs) Are you trying to be funny? <laughs> Maybe call over the person who supervises him or her. Excuse me, sir, ma'am, what is this? You're aware of this money doesn't count. In a limited way, he was good for the context in which he was being used, but this money gets you nowhere ultimately. That's how our moral goodness stands before God. We do good things to benefit others. Praise the Lord. Even those of us who are not believers in Christ. Just do not mistake that for the righteousness, the moral righteousness that God demands. It's very easy to work this out. Just think to yourself, how many times that you've been less than righteous, even today, this afternoon, if you need to go back to this morning, if you want to go back to yesterday when you made dinner, (laughs) it was not theoretical this morning, And then you were wondering whether you get enough for me, me, me. That's not righteous. That's selfish. That's far less than the standard that God demands. Our moral character, according to Paul and the rest of the scripture, has been affected by sin thoroughly and without question, so that when he says from the Old Testament, there is none who is righteous, no, not one, he is speaking not only important, but critical truth for our understanding. The second way he makes this application is in the following phrase. How bad is it? It's worse than is imaginable. He says there is no one who understands. This is another way to complement the first. That is understanding. We're moving from morality to mind. What we're talking about in this phrase is how we make sense of reality. What are the categories we use? How do we try to make the world into a place that makes sense to us? Paul says there's no one who truly understands. Not only is my morality, but also my mind is corrupted by sin. Again, to be sure, there are people who make sense of reality in ways that I'm not able to. And perhaps even the brightest Christian is not. There are non-Christians who know far more about the human body or about geological formations of the earth or the history of philosophy than I do or perhaps you do, even if they do not confess to believe in the God of the universe at all. And these people who have that knowledge, perhaps you're one of them. These are people who have actual knowledge. They know more about your phalanges. They know more about the history of philosophy. What's under debate is not the question of whether they have knowledge, it is whether their minds order things in a way that reflects the character of God. 1 Corinthians 2 13 and 14 say, These things we also teach, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things to spiritual. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 1, 21 and 22, But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they were fools. The point Paul is making is that how bad is it It's not just our morality, our sense of right and wrong that is affected. It's also our minds, the way we make sense of our reality. He says our minds are so affected by sin that we're unable to know God. We will have no desire to follow him unless God moves in its first. It's not just that we need more information so that we can make a good choice. No, Paul says our minds are distorted by sin, They are dead apart from God's work. Which leads me to the third way that Paul describes this in verse 11, and that is no one seeks after God. Our morality is distorted, our mind is distorted, and now we're at the third part of our beings that are radically affected by sin. And now Paul says our will has been changed as well by sin. We do not seek for God The desires we have are not Godward. I would be amiss, I think, if I did not tell you this has been one of the most hotly debated subjects in church history. Is it really true that sinful people cannot seek after God? In St. Augustine's day, the end of the 5th century... He engaged in a debate about this very thing with a monk by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius did not want to to deny, at least at the beginning of the debate, he did not seek to deny that all sin affects all of life. He said, I affirm that. But he could not see how God could demand something of us Namely, that we would repent and believe if God did not also give us the ability to do it. He reasoned that our wills cannot be bound by sin, as St. Augustine said. But instead, our wills, our desires are neutral and at any time We can either choose to follow God or not follow God. We are truly free in regard to our wills. They are not bound by sin. St. Augustine responded by pointing out that sin is more than just individual acts. Sin affects who we are. Ever since the Garden of Eden when we rebelled, our nature has been changed. We are slaves to sin Not only in our morality and in our mind, but in our will, what we desire. We would never choose to follow God according to St. Augustine. That would be after our fall against the nature and desire of our wills. I hope you don't mind me giving you a little more history about this question. It's been so critical to us as a Christian church. If you fast forward to the 16th century... This question of the freedom of the will arose again. Some of you may know Desiderius Erasmus, a good Dutchman of Rotterdam, who initially was sympathetic to the Reformation until it came to the question of the will. He, like Pelagius, believed that God would not require of a man that which he could not perform. Therefore, his will must be free to choose God. And here's where Martin Luther really drilled down by writing a book that is now famous called The Bondage of the Will. In that, Martin Luther acknowledged that people do make choices. You can choose your marriage partner. You can choose what kind of car you drive, where you live. But when it comes to the work of choosing God and following Him, here Luther says... We will not choose God. We will disobey him. We will hate him. We will run from him as far as we can because that is consistent with a fallen will. We have the freedom to do as our will desires and our will apart from the radical change brought by the gospel will hate God and run from him and we will do only what is consistent with that. A few years later, this freedom of the will was one of the central questions at the Senate of Dort, where the Senate affirmed, and I quote, Therefore all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God. They are not able to reform the depravity of their nature. They are not able themselves to be reformed i could read a whole bunch of other scripture passages for you tonight that affirm this truth romans 5 says sin entered through one man but then death spread to all men because all sinned romans 6 says we are slaves of sin Second Peter 2 Peter 2.19 says they themselves, that is identifying those well, apart from Christ, are slaves to corruption. It is amazing how consistent this truth is. And the objection to this truth over and over is that it is inhumane. It does not treat us as full human beings it is the objection of Pelagius and then later Desiderius and then later Pelagius himself, or rather um, Arminius himself, who said, if God requires it, God must enable us to respond. And yet the consistent teaching of the Scripture is that it is worse than that. God is calling to something that we cannot respond to in our own ability. It is not just that God is calling you tonight to believe. He's calling you to something more. And that is to confess that you're unable apart from the work of God himself. Or to put it this way, the teaching of the scriptures is meant to move us to a position of ultimate humility. That in seeing ourselves as bad as we are, we would see the greatness the uncomparable greatness of the mercy of our God in Jesus Christ. A lot of what I've said here tonight is a little bit more academic than normally what I would say. But the end of the sermon is not like that. The end of this sermon is about as simple and straightforward and clear as any word I'll ever say to you. How bad is it? The Bible's answer is as worse than you could ever imagine. But how great is the truth of God's Word that in Jesus Christ He changes us and transforms us so that we go from those who had run from God as fast as we could to those who are drawn to God through Jesus Christ. That news is incredible. It's transformative. It moves us to a joy that could never be ours apart from the absolute mercy of God. In my Bible, if I turn over one page, there are two benefits to this truth. In Romans 5, verse 1, Paul starts by saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. If the news is worse than you can imagine, here's the good news that is far better than you could ever conceive of apart from the truth of the Scriptures. And that is... If the grace of God is poured out to you, not because of who you are, not because of what you have done, then the grace of God is also available to you no matter who you are and what you have done. God is not waiting for you tonight to come to a point at which you finally have become good enough for him to lavish his grace upon you. No, in this moment, he is pouring out his grace on you in a way that is not dependent on you, that it is so bad means it also can be so good because God's grace is rich and free. No strings. No waiting. No, if things are really this bad, they then they can also be this good. The grace of Jesus Christ can be even for you. The last thing I want to say in this sermon comes from one chapter later in Romans chapter 6. In verse 9, Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never again die. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, and once for all, But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There is a certain strain of Christianity that will take the truth that we confess in question and answer 82. will take this news that things are way worse than we could ever imagine. And that strain of Christianity misses the absolute unbridled joy that if things are really that bad, they can also be really that great because of the free grace of Christ. Instead, this sort of strand of Christianity keeps us as a point, at a point where it is almost laudable to continue to act as though the grace of Jesus Christ is not only work in justification, but also in sanctification. Let me just put it this way. Many years ago, the church I was pastoring bought a series of booklets from CCEF, and there was one particular booklet in there that addressed itself to the problem that we also often have when we are using our tongues, being critical, putting people down, saying terrible things about people. And the booklet began by saying, we are called by God to use our tongues in a way that is pleasing to Him. Obey that, repent of nots obeying God in that regard. But the author said it is also ungodly not to look back on your life and see the ways in which God is working a changing grace in your heart. To look back and note and to celebrate that even though we may have a great deal to work on yet, God has already done a great work. He has saved us and he is transforming us. And if your disposition is only to see the places that have yet to change, to dwell on them, to fixate on them, to say in your heart, I still have so far to go, there's no way God could ever love me. Then what I would say to you is you have not yet appreciated the fullness of how bad it is But how great the grace of Jesus Christ. Because the grace of Jesus Christ means that as he works in us, not only someday will he say, you are my child, welcome into eternity, the blood of my son covers you, but the spirit of Jesus Christ is at work in you now. Do you believe that? He is transforming you. So that this truth, it really is that bad, is only true apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. When the grace of Jesus Christ is applied to you, you see that your only hope is in Him. There's nothing you do that commends yourself to Him. But God in His kindness is gradually changing you, conforming, us to him, conforming you to His Son, changing you, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. And your Father does not sit above you as a judge waiting simply to watch you fail so we can punish you. But this Father in heaven is at work in you in a loving, tender way, transforming someone who is dead apart from Him into someone who is alive to Him. And more and more shows the character of Jesus Christ. That's the twofold grace of the gospel. May that fill you with joy, my friend, as you walk before Him. Let's pray. Father, this question about how bad things are is not just a question that we debate in the church. It's really the question of our age. And the wrong answer to this question leads to terrible consequences it leads not only to the kind of actions that destroy and harm and abuse other people it also leads to tremendous disappointment despair frustration anger and we pray that in your kindness to us lord that you would help us to see that if we are unable to resurrect ourselves and it requires the amazing power of jesus christ if there is nothing that we have done that commend ourselves to God, the change that we have received is simply by the grace of God. Then we are moved to a genuine thanksgiving. We can praise You and thank You without worrying about how others perceive us. Instead, we can rejoice in our eternal hope and the way in which you are in work in us now. Lord, may every person who is here and every person listening today have that genuine joy that comes from the greatness of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, May the mind of Christ my Savior. As you leave this time of worship, go with joy, knowing that this blessing of God is yours. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you all. Amen.